Well, welcome in, everybody, and we're just a couple of days away now from the 2021 Final Four, the crazy, compressed COVID-19 version of the NCAA tournament that will have Houston and Baylor play first, followed by Gonzaga and UCLA, Texas, and the West Coast uh, for the Final Four, the first time ever, again, that there's not been a team in the Eastern time zone for college basketball's championship should be wild uh, no matter what. And again, welcome in. It's College Basketball Coast to Coast. I am merely the somewhat capable host, TJ Reeves. However, you found this program. Reminder to subscribe to it. We're going all the way through the Final Four with a preview all of the semifinals, the championship game Monday night, recaps of all of it, recaps after it's over with on Monday night as well on College Basketball Coast to Coast. Subscribe on all the podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Find the show streaming top and bottom of the hour on TuneIn on the Tag Sports Group channel, free on the TuneIn app, free under Tag, T-A-G, Tag Sports Group, top and bottom of the hour, show streams, new show out every day around lunchtime, Eastern time. And let's get into it right now with the Final Four set. It has been far too long. He has been far too busy. So much madness has taken place since I've gotten to talk with Chris Dobertine of bloggingthebracket.com. I love his insight uh, anytime that I can get it. Uh, he's been able to pull himself away from work because the madness has been going on in the afternoon and the evening. Chris got to work during the day and blog the bracket, and he's with me now on college basketball coast to coast. With all of that out of the way, my friend, it's been a crazy tournament. And uh, your thoughts here as we bring you in. Welcome as we now have a Final Four. Yeah, it, it really has been a crazy tournament in terms of the results, but you kind of think about it. We didn't really have you know, the craziness in terms of the games themselves in terms of you know, buzzer beaters. We had one buzzer beater that wasn't really a buzzer beater because of the, you know, time change at the end. You know, they had four tenths of a second to it. We had a potential buzzer beater in, you know, the, the East Region final on Tuesday night, and that didn't pan out because Michigan couldn't hit a three. Wow. So, yeah, it, it, we have a little bit of a contrast here between, you know, the, the results themselves and the actual games where, you know, we've had, and I think part of it is also how we've gone to this new format or whether it's temporary or not, of having more standalone games, you know, that has made it seem like it isn't, it hasn't been as crazy of a tournament in terms of the on the court stuff, you know, as the results have kind of indicated. Yeah. And as to your point, as you mentioned, Sweet 16 and Elite Eight, they really spread it out. So you didn't have overlapping madness per se. Uh, fantastic end. We haven't gotten to talk to you to Alabama, UCLA with a three at the buzzer. Uh, I have joked with others on this show and elsewhere that I have a twin, a 12 year old twin. My twin girls are involved in the bracket really this time for the, for the first time in their lives. One of them had Alabama winning the whole thing. So when that shot went in <laughs> Sunday night, Chris, I don't know. You're in the Midwest in Chicago. I don't know if you heard us out of Florida. I don't know if you heard the state of Alabama <laughs> erupt. But we erupted, came off the couch, and still UCLA found a way to win the game. And let's begin right there with your assessment as an 11 seed. What have they found here? What have they done? How have they been able to knock off a two seed and a one seed and stay alive to this point? What do you see out of the Bruins? That, I think it really has kind of come to the point where, you know, we talk about Nick Cronin and uh, you know, I've been very skeptical about that hire. I just thought that, you know, Mick Cronin, why would Mick Cronin go to UCLA? Why would they hire him? He was like their third choice. It was like his third choice for, you know, another job after Cincinnati. Um, but they have really absolutely bought into what he's doing, you know, especially on the defensive end. That's the thing that really has gotten me. Yeah, they're, 
when you kind of look at what they've done, you know, compared to the other teams in the field where you look at Ken Palm and UCLA is 45th nationally, you know, and adjust defensive efficiency when you or you know, when Gonzaga's fifth and, you know, Houston is eighth and Baylor is 28th. So they, they rank pretty low compared to everybody else, but they have improved so much in going through conference play. And this is why, you know, we, we're going to talk about selection later. This is why I wish the committee would go back to how they used to evaluate the team's last 10 or 15 games, because really in a, in a season, even though the sample size of, you know, 31 games isn't the NBA's 82 game schedule, there's still plenty of time for teams to improve in that time. And we really need to focus a little bit more on who's playing the best going into March. And I think UCLA, even though, you know, they weren't able to beat Oregon state in the PAC 12 tournament, you know, quarterfinals. And that really kind of helped, you know, the PAC 12 get to the point where, you know, it's setting records in terms of the amount of tournament revenue it's going to bring in. Um, They were still improving, you know, late in the year, even though they had some injury issues and they've gotten a little bit healthier too. They, they realized how they're going to, how they were able to play with the roster they had, and they were able to snap that really quick and they were able to buy in, you know, to what McCrona was trying to get him to do on the defensive end in particular. Love the insight of Chris Daubertine. Follow him at Chris Daubertine, D-O-B-B-E-R-T-E-A-N. He's from the SB Nation family of sites, bloggingthebracket.com. He has been with me throughout this run into the NCAA tournament, all the way up to the run of the tournament, conference tournaments, et cetera, as part of college basketball, coast to coast. Uh, finding bloggingthebracket.com, and we'll talk bracketing again in a moment. And uh, uh, to elaborate on what you said, they have made key shot after key shot after key shot in the overtime in the first four game with Michigan State, made big shots, made big shots to begin the overtime with uh, Alabama, made two or three huge ones in the final five minutes uh, against Michigan. As you know, Michigan got the lead with about five minutes left. UCLA came right back down and I believe hit a three to retake the lead. They have just made the clutch shots that have helped not just the defense and, and not just the, the grind the clock, but you got to make the big shots when they come. And to this point, the Bruins have done that, right? One more time. Well, yeah. And you look at, you know, how they're on offense and you think about, well, Mick Cronin, you know, it's a slow, slow style, very deliberate. And, and that's worked to their advantage on offense because you look Gonzaga. Yeah. Gonzaga is number one in terms of adjustment efficiency. You say LA is 13th and, you know, you kind of would think, why would UCLA be that good? But then you kind of look at what they were able to do in those games and how they were able to get the good shots and they were able to get good looks when they absolutely needed them. And and that's all a factor of just having a good, patient, well-structured offense. No doubt about that. Um, again, uh, give them full credit because they could have been gone. They're out. And, and Gonzaga is like the complete opposite. They have had four wipeout games now in the tournament to get to the final four, 28 straight games, Chris, that they have won by double figures. Even the game they trailed big at the half in the conference tournament final with BYU, they reversed it and won by double figures. So this is an amazing run. I keep saying this though, as we head into the preview mode, I've seen this movie before my friend, it was called the Kentucky Wildcats in 2015 when everybody believed they were going to just romp through and win in Indianapolis and Wisconsin knocked them off. And we go all the way back now to 30 years ago, UNLV with Larry Johnson, mm-hmm. Stacey Augman, and that group, they looked invincible. They got to the final four undefeated and Duke beat them in the semifinal. 
So I, I, I just, as we approach Saturday, you cannot get caught up, I don't believe, in Gonzaga can't be beaten and UCLA can't beat them. It's happened twice before. Yeah, I think that one difference, one thing Gonzaga is going to have to be very careful of is that they, they're going to have to kind of, you know, stick to their game plan. Because if, if you let UCLA bog you down and slow you down, that's where I think that, you know, the Bruins are going to end up having an advantage and have an opening to be able to actually beat them. But I don't know. Gonzaga just seems, I mean, you look at, you know, we all thought that that USC game was going to be the game that, you know, they were at least going to get tested that they had enough, particularly on the inside, to really give, you know, Drew Timmy a lot of issues. And that didn't happen. You know, so I, I think that that's the – I think this is a team that is so well-prepared. I think that they're going to be able, you know, between their veteran leadership and just the fact that they have so many players who can spread the floor and just, you know, make it really difficult on a defense – uh, that I think that they're going to be able to get through it no matter what UCLA might be able to try to, you know, throw at them in terms of, you know, slowing things down. Love that. All right. We've given enough time to that semifinal. The first semifinal up is Baylor. Fantastic story of, uh, of what Scott Drew has been able to rebuild there after they were in shambles. We've well documented this. Uh, and now they're the Big 12 regular season champs. They get into this tournament as a number one seed, and they find their way now into the Final Four to play Houston. Old Southwest Conference matchup for Baylor and Houston, with Houston having not been in the Final Four since Phi Slamma Jamma, Baylor not having been in a Final Four since 1950. Somebody wins this game and has a shot at a national championship. Chris, a thought or two on what this comes down to coming off their Elite Eight wins. What does this come down to for Baylor and Houston in your mind? I mean, you kind of think about it. Both these teams are top 10 offensively, looking at the adjusted efficiency margins. But Houston is actually 20 spots higher defensively than Baylor is. And, you know, we kind of have been waiting for Houston to kind of, you know, reach team, you know, in the field that, you know, has going to be able to expose their defense and be able to score on them pretty easily. I think Baylor might have that opportunity. But Houston's defense has just traveled so well over the past couple of weeks that I think they even might even have a slight edge here on Baylor. Interesting. Well, and what about the argument? And this is where, again, it goes into your wheelhouse about seeding, bracketing. I mean, the facts are the facts. Houston beat a 10 seed with Rutgers. They beat an 11 seed with Syracuse. Sorry, Chris, Syracuse alumni, you Mm -hmm. know that. They beat a 12 seed in Oregon State, so they did not have to play the seven. They did not have to play the three, much less did they have to play the one seed up at the top of the bracket in Illinois. Converse that with UCLA having to play Alabama as the two seed and Michigan as the one seed and get through them to get to the Final Four. There is an argument here that Houston has not played a murderer's row and Baylor's clearly the best team they have, they have played in the tournament that they're about to play Saturday. Right. Yeah. I, you know, I think that's kind of the other side of it. You had, you know, you know, them playing, you know, 10 seed, 11 seed, a 12 seed, a whole bunch of teams that actually had to get really kind of lucky to actually get where they are. You know, Houston, you know, on paper should have been able to dominate all those teams and largely did. Um, and Baylor, you know, if you think about how the American was this year, you know, how much of a factor in terms of, you know, Houston's analytics is being driven by the fact that they didn't play, you know, the strongest schedule during the regular season either. So, yeah, I, you you kind of look at Baylor and you think, yeah, this is a major step up in class, you know, in terms of a team that we've kind of considered to be kind of 1B all year. 
that we're kind of expecting Houston to play a really strong game against when they haven't played a team like that, you know, for the entirety of their schedule. Yep, we'll see what happens. Again, Chris Dauber team with me for just a few more moments here on College Basketball Coast to Coast. And again, this man blogs the bracket, game in and game out, week in and week out, all college basketball season. So you are perfect, not just good, but perfect. To ask the question that's been going around on all of the conversations, the internet, uh, you know, the radio, podcast, they've even been talking about it in the CBS and TBS studios and on the game broadcast. Did this selection committee, led by the Kentucky Athletic Director Mitch Barnhart, screw up seeding when you see a Loyola of Chicago in the second game in an 8-9 matchup against a one seed beat a one seed? When you see an Oregon State as a 12 win three games to advance to the Elite Eight? Is there validity in them having screwed up the seeding of some of these teams? Some are making the argument that UCLA should not have been a first-four team. I have some thoughts on this, but I want you to go first on did this committee screw up some of the seating here, and that's why we saw teams with double digits or, in a Loyola case, an eight in front of their name pull shockers? Well, I want to say first that the committee has done a better job than it did in the past because I was actually down our YouTube rabbit hole this week. I was looking at you know all these old CBS broadcasts, and I actually came across an old selection show from 1990 where you, know, you still had conference championship games going on during the selection show back then. <laughs> Incredible. So there was an instance where Fresno <laughs> State was playing Long Beach State for, you know, the Big West Championship. There was a nine seed spot, a nine seed. You know, we don't think about nine seeds as being, you know, on the bubble, you know, compared to, you know, what we have now. Right. Where it was UCSB or Long Beach State. And if Long Beach State lost that game, they were going to be out of the tournament entirely, even though they were slotted as a nine seed. And UCSB would have gotten the shot and in, slot instead. Or it might have been reverse where and know, they were know, playing they, they while play the selection show and as yes. you said, while the show was being revealed. They're playing the game. Yes. It's crazy. Yes. Yes. So, <laughs> so it's so, bad. We, and even we, in those days, I, if I can just digress for a second, in those days, there's no internet, there's really no cell phones, but you gotta believe somebody got word to them, hey, we're playing whoever the one seed is. We're playing whoever if we hang on to the lead. How crazy is that to <laughs> contemplate? It's great. Yeah, so it's better than it was then. But at the same time, yeah, and, and uh, of course, the other factor we have to consider here is we didn't have a lot of non-conference games. And that's really kind of screwed things up because I think that I saw a stat saying that usually, you know, at this point of the season, you know, you're, you're at like half the number of non-conference games even adding in the tournament than you would normally be at. And that's really kind of screwed up the analytics in particular. Like, you know, you look at UCLA right now, UCLA going into the tournament, was, you know, nowhere in terms of, you know, being in the top tier of teams. And now they're up to 15th, you know, in, the in, right in now. the measurables, you and, say, yes. Yeah. And this was a team that was kind of down in the 60, 70 range before the tournament started, uh, maybe a little bit higher. But yeah, they made, you know, a serious jump, you know, up the field. And, and that really, I think, has kind of screwed things up. Um, so, yeah, so it was really difficult, I think. And, and again, I kind of go back to this where we talk about we want to, I think we need to go back to evaluating teams. We don't want to take away credit for those teams that got, you know, good wins early in the season. But I think in particular, we're talking about seeding, not necessarily in selection. We want to focus more on those teams that are playing well late because, you know, as I said, teams improve over the years, you know, over the season. You know, you have to, you know, the, the committee already talks about, you know, what roster 
who's going to be available for those teams as they go in, you know, as affecting the seeding a little bit. I think we need to kind of just take a look more at the results because, you know, those teams over the last, you know, two weeks of the season, two or three weeks, you know, that's going to be closer to how they're going to perform in the field as opposed to how they performed, you know, back in November and December when a million different things might have happened in the meantime. And you and I are in agreement on that. And there's a great debate about whether or not you should strongly weight things in November and December versus February and March. And I have always said, and I realize uh, that there are examples. UCLA lost their last four regular season games. So now you can make the argument that that's counter to what we're saying on, hey, if you're not playing well at the end, you can't do well at the tournament. So there's always examples to go against. But by and large, you look at what Gonzaga has done and how well they have been playing, obviously. That's the extreme. They rolled through their conference. They rolled through their tournament. It translated. Houston, same thing. With the one loss exception to Wichita State, they rolled through the end of the American regular season, rolled through the tournament. You understand it. Baylor comes off of a COVID pause and immediately wins a couple of huge games, including one at West Virginia to win the regular season title. So, again, argument after argument can be made uh, that how you're playing at the end of the year does translate, by and large, into how you do in the tournament. And, again, in the the case of uh, Loyola Chicago – playing again you're in Chicago playing against Illinois we know the committee peaked at that matchup and wanted that matchup for TV for TV purposes just like they they peaked at a couple of other potential sweet 16 matchups or elite eight matchups and said put them in the same bracket I mean how does Abilene Christian as a 14 seed get into the slot with Texas as opposed to Eastern Washington with no connection Colgate or Moorhead State with no connection to Texas they peak at this stuff. So that has something to do with what they're doing in that room that none of us are privy to because it's a TV show for ratings. And that's part of seating also on this. Well, especially in a year like this, where, you know, normally you have, you would kind of consider geography in terms of pairing those three and those, that, those three seeds and those four teams. So yeah, if you had a site, like you had Texas and Fort Worth, yeah, you'd want to put Abilene Christian there because for travel reasons, didn't have to worry about that this year. Sure. You know, that that was not something to really, you know, be concerned with. So, yeah, there there is kind of that side of things where, you know, we need to figure out what's going on with, you know, geography and, and pairings. Uh, and one other thing, too, and others have said this over and over again, Jay Billis is big on this off of ESPN, and I agree with this. Just because of how you perform in the tournament isn't indicative necessarily yeah. of how good you were worn in the regular season or your seed or not. Again, the one seeds, look at what happened. They were the teams that were the best in the regular season, and yet only uh, two of them got there in Baylor and Gonzaga. Two other ones did not. And in terms of the two seeds uh, as well, only one of them gets there in Houston, and that's supposed to be the best teams in the tournament. So you yeah. have one, one, two, and two ones uh, that get there out of the four and an 11 that makes it there. Uh, as well. All right, one more thought because I know you got to go and we do as well on college basketball coast to coast. If this is Gonzaga and let's say it is Baylor, that's a humongous best case scenario title game matchup. How do you think that goes? We don't know if that's the matchup. That's the one we speculate is going to happen. I'm not going to get a chance to talk to you before Monday night. If it is that one, how do you think that game goes for all the marbles with Gonzaga going for an unbeaten season? I think it's a good one, but I think that, you know, Gonzaga probably has a little bit more on the inside, you know, in terms of guys who can actually able, you know, score 
than Baylor does. And I think that ends up being the difference. I think the Bulldogs end up winning it just because, you know, they have a little bit more, um, a little bit more interior ability. Well, and we'll see if it is history and it will be history. If they can get there and get the undefeated season to match what Indiana did in 1976, this man's talking all about it uh, in a figurative sense, blogging the bracket.com. Follow him at Chris Dobertine, D O B B E R T E A N. Always love the insight, my friend. I appreciate you helping me preview Final Four weekend for Baylor, Houston, Gonzaga, UCLA. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, TJ. And there he goes. And here we go with the coaching carousel on college basketball coast to coast as we're coming to you midday on Thursday at the time we're taping the blockbuster news that Roy Williams, the longtime North Carolina coach, has decided at 70 years of age, that's it. I am retiring after 18 seasons at North Carolina, 15 previous years at Kansas, three national championships at Carolina, and obviously was most recently national champion 2017, was there for that Final Four win over Gonzaga, by the way, in the national title game in Phoenix, actually Glendale at the Cardinals football stadium for that matchup. I really believed, even going back the previous year to 2016 Final Four in Houston, that they lost on the last second shot to Villanova and Jay Wright, that Roy Williams might be done then. He looked physically spent then, and he's looked physically spent for the last three or four years. And of course, you're in a in a COVID-19 pandemic year with all of of the stress and the guidelines and the testing and the pauses and the unpausing uh, and trying to play games. And now the transfer portal has become completely out of control with players from every program wanting to test the waters and leave. I can understand we're a Hall of Famer, one of the iconic coaches of the last 30, 40 years of the game. Really, when you go back to the 90s and, and come forward, really the last 30 years of the game, Roy Williams synonymous with Mike Krzyzewski and Jim Beheim. Um, Izzo, Calipari, Patino, the elite of the elite. Uh, and now Roy Williams hanging him up. What will Carolina do? I will tell you this. Porter Moser's agent from Loyola, Chicago, lighting up more cigars. There is no question about that. Because if Moser didn't want the Illinois or the Indiana job out of, out of Loyola, Chicago, if he didn't want the Indiana job, man, oh man, North Carolina, would they want him? Would they go outside the North Carolina family? Remember that all of the coaches that have replaced the late Dean Smith have all had a Dean Smith and Carolina tie. Bill Guthridge is longtime assistant. Matt Doherty after that. Uh, Matt Doherty, a former player and a, and a head coach. And Doherty obviously flamed out and was, was awful uh, in the end. But then the hiring of Roy Williams. It's all Carolina assistants, ties to Dean Smith, Carolina player, et cetera, et cetera. Would Hubert Davis off of Roy Williams' staff, get elevated as a former tremendous player for Dean Smith, connections to the program, been on the bench with Roy for the better part now of about 10 years as an assistant coach, eight or nine years at least. Would he be the logical guy? Would it be a Jay Wright from Villanova? All I know is Porter Moser's agent's got to be loving this because he's making just over a million dollars at Loyola Chicago. The, the value is going up with what he has done and the other programs are out there. Jay Wright... Villanova makes a lot of sense. I don't know that he wants the job, but they might come after him hard as well. And who might be another dark horse name or two, big name that tries to get in the Carolina mix and doesn't have to have a Carolina tie? We'll find out uh, on the coaching carousel as we head to Final Four weekend. Just something else to add to the backdrop. Here's what else we have on the backdrop as well. These matchups coming this weekend. And I'm going to cross over promote 
Uh, another show, another podcast. The Three Dog Thursday podcast out, obviously, on Thursday. Focuses on underdogs. We have a lot of fun predicting games, etc. So I encourage you to find that full show, Three Dog Thursday, on podcast. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. As well, the YouTube video roundtable of Three Dog Thursday. And I'm going to pull a couple of clips here off my guests from the YouTube roundtable of Three Dog Thursday. First up, Tom Looney, longtime colleague of mine, Fox Sports Radio. Uh, Tom has been a big-time fixture uh, in, in Los Angeles, was, was part of the Best Damn Sports Show, period TV show that was going on in the 2000s. Uh, also, KABC Radio knows L.A. inside and out, an L.A. lifer. So I asked Tom Looney on the Three Dog Thursday show, that's again out there on podcast and YouTube, whether Los Angeles right now is embracing this UCLA team. Here was Tom Looney uh, with me about whether Hollywood uh, loves the Bruins right now. Well, remember, it's a front-running city, and we love the stars. And UCLA has always been, well, they're like a black-and-white movie star. They were great in the 70s and the 60s, right? <clears throat> but uh, but people still have the nostalgia for when UCLA won 88 games in a row, and et cetera. So people are always just waiting for them to be great again, or the return to the Final Four. And you know how many coaches they've gone through since Wooden, trying to find the next Wooden, and that doesn't happen. Just hire a coach and stick with them. And it looks like hopefully they're going to do this now with Cronin. They're doing it with a bunch of sophomores, the youngest team in the tournament. So in L.A. loves young. Hollywood loves young. So they are registering here in La La Land. Definitely. Yeah, they, they are a front running town. And we'll see if they embrace uh, the UCLA Bruins now for this opportunity to beat Gonzaga. And again, UCLA completely detached from Los Angeles with the whole tournament going on. Uh, the, the fans can sort of get there to Indy, but it's not like they've been coming back and forth to the campus in Los Angeles for this matchup. And I asked the other guest on Three Dog Thursday, John Harris, who's in Houston. John works with Houston Texans Radio. He's been a longtime radio uh, personality in uh, Houston for 30 years. I asked him about the same thing, whether or not the Houston Cougars, because all of it is happening happening in Indianapolis right now, is the city of Houston embracing this? Start of the baseball season going on, the Deshaun Watson controversy, et cetera. Here was John Harris with me. Boy, I wish they they would have come back to campus because I think there would have been a great reception for them. And, and like I said earlier, the city of Houston has is, is kind of gone, gone through it. You know, the James Harden situation, wanting right. to get out from the Rockets. Um, and then obviously, even before all the legal situation happened for Deshaun, Deshaun wanted out of Houston. And so I think we were all looking for some positive angle and the Astros don't start until Thursday night. So we wanted or needed something positive. And meanwhile, even though really nobody in Houston for the most part talks college basketball until about February, look up and go, Hey, everybody, this Houston Cougar basketball team's pretty darn good. And if you watch them, I think you'll respect what you see from them and that they lock teams down. Yes, they do, but they also play below the rim, and we're so used to five slamma jamma and what they were able to do. Uh, we'll see what Houston can do with Baylor. Again, that's the voice of John Harris and also Tom Looney. They're with me on the Three Dog Thursday podcast. 
Find that full interview, lots of conversation on the Final Four, UCLA and Houston with those guys on Three Dog Thursday. Also, my senior handicapper, Brian Edwards from MajorWager.com and Vegas Insider giving us some Vegas insight into the uh, into the final four, the spreads, the underdog. I mean, UCLA, what, a 14-and-a-half-point underdog with Gonzaga. Holy cow. So Brian is on that podcast as well. Go find Three Dog Thursday. Find the full interviews with those guys. Again, uh, Tom Looney, John Harris are on the YouTube uh, version of that uh, as well. All right, so uh, here we go with the teams arriving at Final Four weekend. Uh, we will find out what happens uh, here. They've arrived at the weekend, even though they're staying in Indianapolis. And, and we'll find out now as they lock in to practice and get ready for these national semifinals with Baylor and Houston up first, followed by the Gonzaga-UCLA West Coast matchup as the nightcap with Gonzaga going for the unbeaten season, trying to become the first team since Larry Bird's Indiana State Sycamores in 1979 to make it to the title game. Obviously, they didn't win it. The last team to make it to the title game and win it is the Indiana Hoosiers three years earlier, 1976. Again, Kentucky got to this point in Indianapolis, ironically, 2015 and lost. And UNLV got to this point undefeated 34-0 and lost also in Indianapolis to Duke. Kentucky losing to Wisconsin. Will it possibly be a Pac-12 team, UCLA, that spoils all of it coming on Saturday? We're counting down to find out. Again, subscribe to this podcast and this show. However you found the show, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you get podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spreaker, etc. It comes automatically to you. New show will be out on Friday. Preview mode as well on Saturday. Recap of the national semifinals late Saturday night into Sunday. Again, you don't have to search for it. It'll come automatically to you if you're subscribed on the podcast platforms. And again, the show also streaming. Another convenient way to find it on TuneIn. On on free uh, coverage on the TuneIn app, go to the Tag Sports Group channel, T-A-G, Tag Sports Group. And the show streams top and bottom of the hour, every hour of every day, all the way through the national championship game in the Final Four. That show's there whenever you like it. For now, we are done. My thanks to Chris Dobertine of bloggingthebracket.com. I am TJ Reeves. We're back tomorrow on the day before the Final Four on College Basketball Coast to Coast.